Well, welcome. We will begin this morning. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will resume where we left off in Deuteronomy 8. So if you would bow your heads with me for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning yet again, asking for your wisdom, asking that you would remember us in your loving kindness and that your spirit would be present here to guide us in our discussion and in our reflection and thoughts over the word that Moses delivered to your people so many years ago. We thank you that you have preserved this text and that you have allowed us access to it, that we may grow in faith, that we might know you better, know your son better, and the power of his resurrection that comes to us through these words. And so we pray that you would bless our time, guide us, deepen our faith, and grow our affections for you. Help us be those who Moses commanded us to be, those who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I gave a handout. Again, as I've said in the past, I'm quite random uh, with doing that and the manner of presentation on those notes. But what I did this week was I basically gave the outline, a very rough outline, mind you, of everything that runs from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, to the end of Deuteronomy 11. Clearly we're not making it to the end of Deuteronomy 11 this morning. But I did that in order that you might see that there is a rhythm that flows along with Deuteronomy and that there are themes that begin all the way in chapter 6 that continue on all the way through the end of chapter 11. Um, And we will come to the second Shema this morning, um, which isn't quite as famous as the first, uh, but nonetheless equally a part of Moses' argument. So in chapter 6, Moses begins to explain the very first of the Ten Commandments, and you could even say the first two. And he expresses it positively. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he explains what that love for the Lord looks like for roughly the next chapter. As he does so, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, he dispels a potential false notion that the reason the Lord chose the Israelites was because there was something special about them in comparison to other nations. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Moses goes on after that giving Israel motivation for why they ought to love the Lord. That occupies, uh, frankly, that theme continues on until the middle of chapter 10. Why should Israel love the Lord? So that is kind of the theme we are in the middle of looking at. He uh, continues on there in chapter 7, describing what the Lord is like and how the Lord will bless Israel in the future. In chapter 8, then Moses turns to what God's love has done for Israel and what it has looked like in the past. And what it has looked like is fatherly discipline. And that discipline was for Israel's good, which was a spiritual lesson of recognizing that everything uh, Israel lives, not by bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And one of the rhetorical effects Moses is aiming for is creating humble dependence within the Israelites because another part of his argument there in chapter 8 comes at the end of the chapter when he dispels the second false notion that Israel may have and it comes in verses 17 and 18 where we pick up this morning. Beware lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So when Israel grows wealthy, she is not to think, just as there was nothing in her that was the foundation for the Lord choosing them, there is nothing in Israel that is the source of the wealth that they will receive in the future. Because they receive everything they do from God as a gift, they are to receive it thankfully. So here we're going to review 
simply by reading the text from last week. So starting in chapter 8, verse 10. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. They are to be thankful and enjoy God's gifts, but they are to be watchful of their own deceptive hearts when that happens. Verse 11, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And the reason they are to beware is because their own hearts will quickly turn to pride in their prosperity. Verses 12 through 14. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herd and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And what that lifted up heart looks like, we get to in verse 17, which we already read. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. What happens in those intervening verses is Moses describes who the Lord is. And that is a central part of what Moses is trying to do through, throughout these chapters. He is cutting Israel down. Um, maybe I should say he's cutting Israel's pride down so that she will not look to herself, but so that she will look to God. And he builds the character of God in chapter 7, and he builds it again here in chapter 8, in verses 14, 15, and 16. He is the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He's the God who brought you, out of, brought you water out of the flinty rock and the God who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do, what, to do you good in the end. Three times the theme of affliction or humility is brought out in this chapter. Moses is trying to bring Israel to a recognition of her humility, or we might even use the old Puritan term, her humiliation before the Lord. There is nothing in Israel that they ought to look at for any source of pride. They are to be humble and they are to recognize everything they have and everything they are is a gift from God. Even her own power to gain wealth is given by God, which leads us to where we are this morning in verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The delusions of self-sufficiency in verse 17 lead to forgetting God in verse 18. You shall remember the Lord, for he's the one who gives you wealth. Don't forget the Lord. Remember that he is the source of what you get. He's the one who's cared for you in the past in unexpected ways and ways that far exceed what Israel could have possibly conjured up on her own. Israel couldn't have pulled herself out of slavery. Israel couldn't have fed herself manna. Israel couldn't have led itself through the wilderness, even with Moses' father-in-law as a guide. Israel couldn't have done any of those things that the Lord credited to himself earlier on in the chapter in verses 14 to 16. And the point of verse 18 then is that we're to remember that God is the one who enables Israel to work for the wealth that they will gain later on in the future. The produce of the land, back in verse 7, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, fountains, springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, land of olive trees and honey. All of those things are there, as if the land just spontaneously produces it. It does have to be gathered. Israel has to gather that bounty But the ability to glean all of those things is a gift from God. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Now the fascinating thing is the desired objective of verse 18 isn't making Israel wealthy for the sake of making Israel wealthy. 
Israel's wealth is a means to an end. That's the last part of verse 18. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. Everything we have, including what we're commanded to enjoy, is given as a gift and is to be used for God's sake. Moses is establishing that here. And he says, beware lest your hearts forget. You didn't get that on your own. Someone gave it to you. Use it for his glory and use it for his honor. Now the second thing to bring up is that God gives us what he does primarily for his own sake, not for ours. That may seem unsettling for some, and it usually takes a slightly different form. When it is taken into the realm of a spiritual conversation, people want to say uh, in evangelicalism things like, well, I am assured that I'm saved because God loves me. God's love for me is why Christ went to the cross. Biblically speaking, we don't really have a good foundation for that. And this here is a great example of why we don't have that foundation. God does love Israel, but the foundation of God's love for Israel isn't them. The foundation for God's love of Israel is a covenant that he swore to the fathers. That's what we saw earlier on as well. So back in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, it wasn't because you were more in number, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. That is all over chapters 6, 7, and 8. Not only that, but God's blessing can quickly turn to cursing following our obedience or our disobedience. And God's love for a people doesn't rule excuse me, doesn't rule out the possibility of exterminating them. That's one of the great warnings through these chapters. And we'll come to it here in verses 19 and 20. God's love for a people doesn't rule out the possibility of their extermination. And that doesn't mean um, that God doesn't love them, as he mentioned in verse 7. But again, the foundation of that love is not inherent in them. It is in a covenant he made with someone else. And so our assurance is that God will carry us along for his glory, not because of something in us. And that should be comforting. If we know ourselves to be the sinners that we are, we should be comforted that God doesn't base our assurance in something that we have or something that we are. He bases it in something else. And so if we are found to be among the faithful and we are blessed for it, it's because God has enabled us to be found among the faithful and blesses us for it. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul mentions this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul doesn't deny that Israel has to work for her wealth, just any more than he would deny that he has to work as an apostle. But the foundation of the ability to work and the foundation of the fruits of that work are all of grace. And Paul, uh, no doubt, gains much of that theology from what we're here uh, seeing here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The third and the last thing I'll mention about chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, is the irony of self-sufficiency. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Pride is a cruel taskmaster. Those self-sufficient people tend to focus on making sure that they are materially secure and well provided for. And they tend to pay far less attention to spiritual matters. This is not only something that strikes the rich, it strikes the poor equally. And so, Matthew 6, Jesus attacks the notion, not merely of self-sufficiency, but where our priorities are to lie as we work our way through the world. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now here are the lines we're looking for, verse 30 and following. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. That again goes back to the idea, what we have is all given as a gift, and it's not to be used for our own glory and for our sakes. Our cars... Our kitchen tables, our living rooms, our finances, our time, everything we have is a gift meant to be used for God's glory. We don't say of anything we have, my power and the strength of my hand, my cunning, my shrewdness have gotten me these things. The irony is we are to be faithful to God and God sees to it it is a matter of his own faithfulness that his children are provided for. Did you catch that at the end there of verse 30? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Why include that? It's a matter of God's faithfulness that his children are cared for. God will see to that. The rich and poor alike have the same problem. We tend towards delusions of self-sufficiency. And Moses spends a chapter saying, man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You are not sufficient to take care of even yourself, let alone others. God is the one who takes care of you. And so what happens is when we forget that, we become our own taskmasters, and we are a lot less kind than God is. We are a lot less faithful than God is, and we're a lot less capable than God is. But self-sufficiency doesn't mean that we think we are ultimately self-sufficient. We tend instead to think of my strength. My strength in verse 17 does not mean that I believe I'm ultimately self-sufficient. What it does mean is it thinks that I have the wisdom and the resources to get what I need. And look how that works out at the end of chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. And if you forget the Lord your God. That's the same thing as in verse 11, by the way. Take care lest you forget the Lord. And goes on to say, your heart will be lifted up. And if you forget the Lord your God, verse 19. And go after other gods. What is the relationship between verse 17, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, and verse 19? If you forget the Lord and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, what's the correlation between those two things? Well, worshiping other gods might appear to have the same benefits as worshiping the Lord. In Israel's case, so let's let's read this first as an Israelite before we read it as an American. That's how we have to do it. Read it first as an Israelite. If I can worship the Lord, if if worshiping the Lord results in material prosperity, and in the Old Testament, that's what it was. I will make you the head, not the tail of the nations. If worshiping the Lord results in blessing, but I must be chaste. Or if worshiping Baal and venting my sexual perversions results in the same material blessing. Why don't I worship the God where I control the slots that I put into the, 
the coins I put into the slots. Why not do it in a way that is more satisfying to my base nature? And why not do it in a way where I feel like I have a greater measure of control? Because I can't control what the Lord does, but I can try and manipulate Baal. There's different rules to those games. So in Israel's context, the idea of self-sufficiency isn't, no one got this for me. It is, no, I had the wisdom. I had the cunning. And I had the understanding of the way the world works. I know reality on my own, well enough to know these gods will provide the same thing the Lord provides, but I can worship them in my own way. So why not do that? And if Israel prospers, no, it was my wisdom that got this. I just knew how to manipulate the gods well enough. Right? That's that's how it worked for Israel. And so again, it's not ultimate self-sufficiency, It is self-sufficient in the sense of, I know how to do this on my own. Now, if we are to read this as Americans, imagine someone who is financially conservative, doesn't make extravagant purchases. Um, We would say, by all appearances, wise with their money, but they refuse to honor the Lord with their wealth through giving and generosity. We might question their long-range motives, their immediate loyalties, and their spiritual outlook. Because the question is this. Who takes care of them? Would God take any less care of them if they honored the Lord with their wealth? Is it their wisdom that allowed them to accumulate what they have by the end? How does that work? And so... Thankfulness and generosity end up being key because thanklessness, which is what self-sufficient people tend to be, if I've worked for it, it's mine. It is not someone who gave it to me. Self-sufficiency undercuts thankfulness. That is akin to idolatry. And so what we find in Romans 1 is the same pattern as we just saw in Deuteronomy 8. Romans 1, verses 21 to 23. The thanklessness of self-sufficiency creates problems. Romans 1, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Doesn't that sound a lot like the idea of the power of my hand has gotten me this? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And don't be mistaken, those images are not an end in themselves. Those images are a means to an end. The things that every human craves. Security. Satisfaction. Everything that the Lord promised he would give Israel if they followed him. So, that will lead them, thanklessness will lead them into idolatry. And if that happens, let's read, uh, pick it up again in the beginning of verse 19. Of Deuteronomy 8. So back to Deuteronomy 8, verse 19 now. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not listen, you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Because the lesson of verse Five and verse 3 of chapter 8 were not absorbed. In those lessons, our man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord has disciplined you. Because those lessons were not absorbed by Israel, they ended up living like Canaanites. Thanklessness to the Lord, pursuing all forms of idolatry. 
If they live like Canaanites, they perish like Canaanites. They perish off the land. The same word is used here of the word that the Lord uses of driving the Canaanites out and destroying them before Israel. Moses here calls himself a witness, and what a witness he is. He was a witness to Israel when he gave the speech. He was a witness to Israel and remained a witness to Israel through the writings that he preserved for us here as well. So uh, Moses was as true as the cloud the people saw him walk into up on Mount Sinai, and the purpose of that cloud was so that Israel would believe Moses forever. Uh, So Moses here remains a steadfast witness. We finished out chapter 8. Any questions or comments about it before we move on? Matt. What's your question in chapter 7? Well, we started out by talking about the, in chapter uh, 7, verse 8, the oath uh, to the Father, which is for his sake of deliverance, not God's love for us or for the Israelites. Right? I should clear... I should, clar- I should make sure that I have that um, clarified. I'm glad you brought that up. So verse 7, it's not because you were, of chapter 7, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. So there is certainly a love that the Lord has set on Israel, but it is because the Lord loves you. Yes, the Lord does love Israel, but it's not because of anything in them. The love of God is found only in God's love for Israel, which is mysterious. You can't go deeper than that, right? But he does explain that just a little bit with the next line. Um, Because he loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. If that oath to the fathers wasn't there, would God's love for Israel be there? That's kind of the question that hangs in the air, right? So God, the foundation of God's love for Israel is not Israel. The foundation of God's love for Israel is is an oath that he made to the fathers. And I'll explain that uh, in a clearer way once we get here into chapter 9. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that it's not God's like, sense of is our salvation or, or his deliverance or entering the land his duty to himself or is it his affection for you know, saving his people? And maybe the basic kind of duty versus love, but I just want to make sure I... And, and I would say there's no verses there. God's duty is a duty he has obligated himself to, and that obligation also um, is bound to his affections for Israel. He doesn't love Israel out of a duty. He loves Israel out of a love he has, um, an, an unexplainable love. But he also carries that out simultaneously as a duty. I will remain faithful because I swore I would. And uh, Scripture makes lots and lots of mention of the Lord doing what he does because of the unchanging character of his promise. So his promise is a sure foundation, and that's what we cling to. We don't cling to an ambiguous, God loves you. And the reason we don't is because Scripture says, Paul says it in Romans, and um, one of the prophets, I want to say Hosea, but I'm not sure that's right. That's not right. Um, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And the question is, how do you know you're not an Esau? How do you know you're one of the Jacobs? Well, the Jacob clings to the promise, right? So so what happens when when we use the evangelistic message and base it only on God loves you, yes, there's a sense in which we can say that, but there's also a sense in which we can't really say that. There is a sense in which we can say God has promised to save all those who believe on his name and who call upon him, which is very different. And to them we say God loves you. As, as he promised he would. But that promise is sure because he's, he's given a promise attached to it, right? Um, so the way we handle God's love is um, surprisingly complex. Should we expect anything else from an infinite God? Anything else? Good question.
Yeah, yep. And we'll, we'll get to that here in chapter 9 because the same theme comes up where we're going to end for today. So that's a, a great note to, to press forward on. Thank you. So chapter, six, uh, chapter 9, sorry. Verses 1 to 6, I will read all six verses this time. Um, don't often do that, but I'll do that uh, today. And then we'll come back and make some sparser notes about what's here. Deuteronomy 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it was because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that, he swore, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. I, I made, uh, I put a break between verses 6 and 7. There is uh, textually a bit of a break, actually, there. The paragraph break should be there, I think. Um, so we're going to go through verse 6 this morning. On the back side of the handout, I gave you my translation of the passage. Again, there are times when it's just easier to show you what I do with the text uh, as I explain the text. Um, I think that might be more clarifying. So chapter 9, verse 1, begins the exact same as chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4 is the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel. Shema Israel. That's what it is. Hear, O Israel. Now, Shema is to hear. So I have dubbed chapter 9, verse 1, the second Shema. It's the only other time it occurs in Scripture this way. It's the only other time in Deuteronomy it appears like this. It is a summons to Israel to hear. Uh, so here, O Israel, it is a summons to pay attention and it is supposed to enshrine in one's mind in a very unique and powerful way what is coming after it. After the first Shema is the great commandment, love the Lord your God. Um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. After the second Shema, Moses continues the theme of motivation, why Israel is to love the Lord, but now he turns from a positive to a negative. And he focuses on Israel's spiritual depravity and the way God has dealt with Israel in the midst of her spiritual depravity up until this point. That is to be also a positive motivation. So in Deuteronomy 8, Moses explained what God's love for Israel looked like in the past. It was discipline. He looked what, uh, what it will look like in the future, which is abundant blessing. But before Israel can get to that abundant blessing, they actually have to go in and possess the land. So Moses turns his attention to what now lies most in front of Israel, and that is the difficult task of taking over the land. Three times... Moses articulates the difficulties. Nations are greater and mightier than you. Cities are great and inaccessible unto the heavens. A people great and many, the sons of Anakim. It is not by accident that great describes all three of those things. They face impressive and insurmountable challenges as they press their way towards the land. And they, are, they recognized the first time they were to go into the land their own incompetence. That's why they rebelled, right? When they came to Kadesh Barnea, they sent the spies in. The spies came back. 
and said, the sons of Anak are there. We can't do this. They were right. They couldn't. The problem is they didn't trust the Lord. They weren't humbly dependent on their God. Moses is telling them, don't do that again. Be humbly dependent on the Lord and know who this God is who goes before you. So the threat is culminated with a proverb. So in the the arcs I have there, that proverb is, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? On the other side of that proverb is, who is God? He just gave three lines describing the impossibility of taking over the land. Now he describes the three reasons why it's possible to take that land. And he focuses on God. So verse 3, Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He is a great God. He will exterminate them and he will subdue them. So what Israel has known are the sons of Anak, but Israel also is to know who God is. The sons of Anak may be a great and many people, but the Lord is a consuming fire. The cities may be great and inaccessible up to the heavens, but the Lord will exterminate them. The nation might be greater and mightier than Israel, but God will subdue them. The challenges are there, but God is greater than he who is in the world. He subdues nations before them without a problem. So no matter how great the greatness of these people and nations are emphasized, the greatness of Israel's God is greater. And because God will subdue them, verse 3, Israel shall dispossess them, verse 3. Because the Lord will exterminate them, verse 3, Israel shall cause them to perish quickly, just as the Lord spoke to them. So here again, we see what we might call the symbiosis between God and Israel, and why it takes great faith to believe what the Lord is doing. The work of God is quite inconspicuous. The Lord subdues the nations as Israel dispossesses them. There is no disjunction between the two. It is not as though the Lord subdues the people and weakens them enough so that Israel may come in and take them over. That's not how it worked. Read Joshua. They were just as strong. The cities were just as fortified. The Anakim were just as tall. When Israel goes into the land, the Lord doesn't cut the people down, and then Israel comes in. The Lord doesn't exterminate them, and then Israel causes them to perish. Rather, the Lord subdues them as Israel displaces them. The Lord's work of exterminating them is the work of Israel causing them to perish. That is why Moses spends his time before this saying, it was not your power, it was not the might of your hand. Because as we look at the world, it looks like what happens as a result of our work is purely a result of our work. The Lord's work is inconspicuous. But he's the one who gives you power to do what you're going to do. And he is the one who works ahead of us as well. And so there is no separation between those works. They are not consecutive. They are simultaneous. And if the eyes of Israel's faith grow dull, they will not see the invisible hand of God who is undergirded, sustained, and given them success. Which takes us back all the way to an original warning we had in chapter 6, verse 10. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. This is right after the Shema is completed, the, the four, five verses of the Shema. Chapter 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you. 
with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That warning is a theme that not only we might say overhangs the whole section, but it explicitly pokes its head out at different places in the argument. And it comes uh, in a refreshed way uh, here in chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. So let's go back to chapter 9 very quickly. Keep a finger in chapter 6. We're going to go back there again to verse 10 in just a moment. So chapter 9, verse 3. Know therefore today, rather than focusing on the enemy, focus on God, that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Three crucial times Israel is told to know God. Here in verse 3 of chapter 9, also in verse 6 of chapter 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. So again, focus on God. The other time it says to know God, we already saw, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 and 9, which is where we'll really bring our focus. So chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, God's love for you isn't grounded in yourself. Chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, and he describes what God is like. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, is this is how God dealt with you. We live by God's word, but then the no God uh, is actually there in verse 11. Sorry, not verse 11. Uh, Verses 17 to 19. Uh, Do not forget, but rather remember, which is in verse 11 and verse 17 and 18. God is the one who gives you those things. Each of those times, no God comes out. Moses is doing something particular with Israel, and that takes us back to the first side of our sheet. No God has chosen you. It's not because of you. Remember, and no God has disciplined you. Where is the no in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3? I know it's in there. Ah, verse 8, verse 3, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Verse 5, know then in your heart uh, that God is this way. So there it is. Uh, chapter 8, verse 5 is the no. Uh, remember and know God has disciplined you, and God will bless you. It's not because of you. And the third time, know what God will do for you in chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. And he's doing it for you, not because of you. So three times, know God, not because of you. Know God, not because of you. Know God, not because of you. Moses is trying to draw Israel's attention away from themselves and on to God. And isn't that exactly what we need? And so there is a pattern that Moses is developing here. Recognize God and know what he is like and what he does is not because of you. You are not the reason God does what he does. And the moment we think anything is due to our work, we trip right into the idea of idolatry born of self-sufficiency. Moses here in this three times repeated, not because of you, is about to drop a bomb on Israel. And all he is dropping is Israel's history back on themselves. He is going to elaborate Israel's spiritual perversity and moral bankruptcy. You are spiritually depraved, Israel. The Lord doesn't do for you because of who you are. Back to chapter 9, verse 4. This is the third time Moses has said, their hearts will go astray. Do not say in your heart, 
after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of your it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. This is another form of self-sufficiency. Rather than a self-sufficiency of wealth, it is a self-sufficiency of privilege or merit in the Lord's eyes. That is certainly not the case. Moses two times rejects that notion. He rejects it again in verse 4. It was because of the wickedness of these nations. And he rejects it in verse 5 in two different ways. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, but because of the wickedness of the nations. The Lord is driving them out. So because the nations are wicked... God is driving them out, and he's causing Israel to possess their land. That is a warning. Righteousness doesn't count for anything. Israel's righteousness doesn't count for anything. Wickedness leads to destruction. There is a sort of positive and an extreme negative. Obey the Lord, you'll live. That's the positive. But your life isn't because of your righteousness. It's because of God's grace. On the other hand, your wickedness will work for you destruction. You can't work yourself into life. The Lord gives life. You can work yourself into destruction. And it is a real possibility. So God's work of driving out the Canaanites is not because of Israel, not because of their righteousness, not because of their numbers, and not because of their strength. He's driving them out because of their wickedness. And verse 5 of Deuteronomy 9, the last half of it. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Repeatedly, the Lord tells Israel that the reason they will receive the land is because he swore an oath. But the closest parallel to what we have here in chapter 9, verse 5, is in chapter 6, verse 10. I told you we'd go back there. So chapter 6, verse 10. We'll read it one more time, and we'll compare it with chapter 9, verse 5. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, so there's the threefold patriarchal, Reminder, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The next time that occurs is chapter 5, verse 9. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 5. That he may, uh, he will drive them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Israel is about to receive what they are about to receive because God made a covenant with someone else. That is the exact same experience we as Christians have. We receive what we do, not because of our righteousness, but because God made a covenant with Christ. And God promised Christ something. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 we can see this idea of the covenant being the foundation of our grace the exact same way. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The Father chose us in Christ. Why did he choose us in Christ? Because he promised Christ offspring. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 29, I think is the clearest place that we see it. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29 
John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God chose those whom he would give to Christ. And he chose them because he made a promise to Christ before the foundation of the world. If we are Christian and we follow and hear the voice of Christ, it is not because of our righteousness. It's not because of the power of our hand or our cunning. And it's not because there was something great about us, that the Lord chose us. He chose us in love. Yep, unexplainable love, mysterious love, but he chose us in love because he made a covenant with himself, who is Christ. That covenant and that promise and that love are absolutely 100% unchanging. The argument Moses is making in Deuteronomy is that Israel's future while contingent on obedience for any given individual or generation, is secure because God has made a covenant with someone else. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore you are the beneficiaries of it. God made a promise to Christ, therefore we are beneficiaries of it. That's how it works. The greatest comfort we could have is that our assurance is not found in us. We are terribly fickle, right? We sing songs about prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The psalmist in Psalm 119 ends his great ode to the law on, like a lost sheep, I have gone astray, seek your servant. We are tremendously twisted and yet perverted people, even with the Spirit changing us. Our assurance, rather, is found in what God has promised Christ, and that doesn't change. And so we can go on with great confidence into our future. God, uh, we, we also need that assurance. Moses gives Israel that assurance because of what is coming in chapters 9 and 10 as he reminds Israel of their spiritual depravity that yet clings to them. And if they are to have confidence in their future and what God will do for them, he has to build up the case of God's greatness and unchanging character in order for them to confidently go in and possess the land. We follow the exact same pattern. Questions or thoughts over what we've covered here today? Very good. God willing, I will see you next week.